Welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. My mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control over their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. The PCOS Diva podcast is proud to be sponsored by the Oversense Real-Time Ovulation Monitor, helping women with PCOS take back control of their cycles. Ovasense is a true fertility monitor that can help you track fertility medications and supplements along with any positive health changes you make to see if they are having an effect. Ovasense consists of a medical-grade silicone vaginal sensor which tracks core body temperature every five minutes while you sleep. And in the morning, you simply download your data to the Ovasense app. It's quick and easy. Only Ovasense offers real-time, 24-hour, advanced prediction in cycle and ovulation confirmation with 99% clinically proven accuracy. And it will work for you even if you have highly irregular cycles. Find out how Ovasense can help you understand your fertility at ovasense.com US. And if you haven't already, make sure you check out PCOSDiva.com. There I offer tons of great free information about PCOS and how to develop your PCOS diet and lifestyle plan so you can begin to thrive like a PCOS diva. Look for me on iTunes, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram as well. On today's PCOS Diva podcast, we are going to be answering all of your questions about ovulation. And when I say we, I mean myself and one of my favorite PCOS Diva podcast guests. This, I think, will be her fourth time on the show, Dr. Rashmi Khadija. So welcome back, Dr. Khadija. Thank you so much, Amy. It's such a pleasure to be back here with you. And if you're not familiar with Dr. Khadija, she is a board-certified reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. She works out of Houston, Texas, and she works for CCRM Fertility Clinics in Houston. She used to uh, work in New York City, where she was named a New York Super Doctors Rising Star for two years in a row. And she really is one of the stars of uh, my guest experts on the PCD podcast. So uh, if you haven't heard our other episodes, uh, she talks on episode 85 about improving quality of life with PCOS. Episode 38, we talk about PCOS and IVF, and episode 30, a topic that a lot of women are interested in, PCOS and menopause. There's just not enough information about that. So check those episodes out. But today we're going to be talking about ovulation. So I thought we could start with maybe just real, the basics, you know, what is ovulation? Yeah, I think I love to start there. And actually, um, any patients that I see in the office too, it's usually where we start as well, because... For many of us, we didn't really receive very comprehensive sexual education growing up. And, you know, if we did, that might have also been a long time ago. Um, And so I like to start with the basic physiology. Um, And so really, I think, you know, what is ovulation? I mean, in simple terms, that's essentially when we release the egg each month, if we actually are ovulating. 
um, which sounds deceptively simple. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So I, I think the interesting story behind that is that for us as women, we are born with all of the eggs that we're going to have. And interestingly, is that something about one to two million? Um, and actually, believe it or not, the biggest drop off in the number of eggs that we have happens before we're even born. Um, because actually, at about 20 weeks, so halfway through our own pregnancy of being gestated ourselves, um, we're probably at six to seven million. Um, and so that biggest drop off happens before we're even born. Um, so I always think that's a really interesting factoid. But at any rate, each of those eggs um, is, is sitting inside of a little fluid filled sac that's called a follicle. And and basically, once we hit puberty, um, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, we may um, begin to have a fully functioning reproductive access, what happens is that each month, there's a cohort of those follicles that starts to grow. Um, and if we did an ultrasound, we'd be able to see um, how many follicles were in that cohort. And so let's say for the average teenager or 20-year-old, you know, between the two ovaries, there could be easily, you know, 20-something or 30-something follicles each month that start to grow. Now, if we actually are ovulating, then out of that group of follicles, each month one of them gets the message from the brain to become the dominant follicle, and that matures the egg inside. And over the first two weeks or so of the cycle, that's kind of the process that's going on. So we go from having lots of little, little follicles when we start our period to over the course of usually about 14 days having one mature egg. And then finally, that egg is released from the follicle, and that's your moment of ovulation. And then during that cycle, any of those extra little follicles that were not the dominant one actually just die off and get reabsorbed by the body. And then if somebody gets pregnant and your fertile window is kind of your day of ovulation and about the five days prior to that, if you get pregnant, then two weeks later, you'd be able to see that on a, on a pregnancy test. And if not, then that triggers the next period to come. And so then the whole thing starts all over again. So that's what's meant to happen. Um, but obviously, we're going to dive deep on, on the topic today. But for a lot of women, you know, that's not exactly the pattern that we're seeing. And for women with PCOS, having issues with ovulation is actually one of the diagnostic criteria. Exactly. Um, and so that's really interesting because, you know, it's not that infrequent that um, I actually have patients come in and they tell me that their cycle seems regular or they think that they have a regular cycle um, that's coming, you know, that we sort of define that as something that's coming every 21 to 35 days. So it is actually a minority of women, of all women that have that textbook 28 day menstrual cycle. But, um, you know, so that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind as well. But anything that comes fairly regularly every 21 to 35 days, you would say is a, you know, quote unquote, normal menstrual cycle. But that being said, you know, I've seen many women over the years that came in and told me that they were having that. And then when we actually, you know, try to follow along and see if they are ovulating, we find that they're not. Um, and so for women that have PCOS, you know, as you said, that's one of the three main criteria that we use, um, you know, when we were using that Rotterdam criteria to actually diagnose PCOS. Um, you know, not having ovulatory cycles is, is one, it was the foundational one, to be honest. But just to clarify, um, women that are listening that don't have problems with ovulation and they have these regular cycles, they can still have PCOS. I just wanted True. to. Yeah, exactly. If you have the other two, so that would be kind of how the ovaries look on the ultrasound and then either, you know, symptoms or um, blood work that would indicate a higher than average level of the androgen hormones, then you could definitely still um, have that have that diagnosis. And actually, so what I think is interesting about the ovulatory issues in PCOS is that every woman is a little bit different and every woman over the course of her lifetime might not be the same. So, you know, what oftentimes um, happens that I'm sure, Amy, you know, you've, I'm sure you've talked to God knows how many, how many women at this point with the story, but, you know, many times people will come in and have difficulty starting their family 
um, and maybe we use medication to help spark the ovulation. Um, and then at a later point, you know, they may actually become ovulatory on their own. Um, and so I always make sure to tell my patients, you know, essentially when the cycle is coming irregularly, there's a couple different possibilities for why that could be. So, you know, one possibility is that um, out of all of those little follicles that are sitting there, in PCOS, what often happens is that that message from the brain, you know, to sort of get one of those follicles to mature the egg inside gets kind of lost in translation. But particularly when we're young, you know, all of those follicles are sitting there making some estrogen. And so cumulatively over time, that, that estrogen goes to thicken up the uterine lining. And eventually, even if there's never an ovulation, it kind of just gets this thick, unstable uterine lining and eventually it needs to shed. And so that's where, you know, when women come in and they say, you know, I have this very, very heavy period. Sometimes it lasts for a week or more. I mean, sometimes people come in and tell me that they've had months of bleeding. Um, it's often what, we, what I just described, which is what we call an anovulatory bleed, where essentially, um, you know, there's the hormone pattern didn't follow that, that normal uh, pattern we would expect, but that estrogen has thickened up the uterine lining and it needed to shed. So that's one possibility. But the other possibility is that sometimes people do release an egg um, they do ovulate, but instead of it taking about two weeks for that to happen, it could take, let's say, a month. Um, and so, you know, let's say it takes four weeks for, you know, that cohort of little follicles to have one that actually responds to that message and ovulate, um, you know, and then if somebody doesn't get pregnant, again, two weeks later, you would get that period. So the whole cycle would be six weeks, which might sound irregular, and you might think, okay, well, you know, I don't. I don't have to use birth control or anything like that because I'm, I'm not, you know, having a regular menstrual cycle, but you could actually ovulate. And so I've had a lot of patients that have had, you know, whoopses along the way because they were convinced that, you know, they didn't ovulate or maybe they had difficulty, you know, achieving their first pregnancy. And then, you know, they had this, um, this escape ovulation that occurred kind of sporadically. So it's really important to kind of, um, to know that, you know, those are options as well. Those are possibilities as well that, just because maybe you're anovulatory at one period in time doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. And is it true that women with PCOS tend as they age to, to become more ovulatory? Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's part of this, I mean, I wouldn't call it a myth, but um, there's sort of this, um, you know, thing that gets said, which is that uh, women with PCOS become more fertile as they become older. And I wouldn't quite put it that way, but people, when they say that, are, re are referring to exactly what, what you said, which is that as we age, for all of us as women, whether we have PCOS or not, basically, you know, that number of eggs that we have each month at cohort is smaller and smaller. And as a result, the hormones that are being produced are also decreasing as well. And so what happens as we get older, for many women, their hormone levels come more in line with sort of the typical hormone patterns we would expect to see. And as a result, um, they actually become ovulatory. And so for some women with PCOS, you know, they may in their late 30s or early 40s, all of a sudden start to have regular ovulatory menstrual cycles, uh, which comes as quite a surprise. But I've had patients ask me over the years, let's say they're, you know, 35, you know, they, I've had patients ask me, you know, should I just wait? Maybe in a few years, I'll become, you know, my, uh, my cycle will become ovulatory spontaneously. Um, and the answer to that is, you know, if you're trying to get pregnant, definitely not, because, you know, the chances of that egg being healthy also go down as we get older. Um, but it's really interesting that um, you may actually be more likely to become obligatory on your own as you get older. And I think to go along with that question, uh, do you, how are you finding that your patients with PCOS seem to uh, enter menopause later? Uh, do so, we, you know, okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's a great question too. And, you know, it's interesting because 
It, the answer to that is, is generally not really. Um, you know, the average age of menopause in this country is 51. Um, and there is a distribution around that, but you know, it doesn't seem um, that necessarily menopause is meaningfully later with women that have PCOS. Um, I think it's just that you know we're kind of going through more follicles um, every month, and even though you know, even if you're not ovulating, that cohort of follicles that starts to grow still is kind of gone through in that cycle. So sometimes people wonder, you know, if I don't ovulate every month, or you know, if I've been on birth control or something, does that somehow save my eggs? And you know, the answer to that is no. Um, and then I think you know the the correl- correlating question to that um, that I've also seen people ask is is it possible that my, you know, reproductive window is later? So, you know, if I have all of these eggs, does that mean it's more likely that I could get pregnant, you know, further into my 40s, let's say, than a woman that doesn't have PCOS? And I would say that, you know, with outside of the IVF, um, you know, option, so if you become ovulatory on your own or if you're using oral medications like ovulation induction medications to get one or two eggs to release, I would say not really because, you know, as we get further into our 40s, we have fewer and fewer eggs that are chromosomally healthy and able to turn into a healthy pregnancy. So, you know, no, I don't think that the menopause age is super different. And, and no, it doesn't also allow us to necessarily, um, you know, get spontaneously get pregnant later into our lives, you know, later into our 40s with the PCOS diagnosis. Okay. So I uh, heard you answer this question uh, earlier, but I just want to be really clear so listeners understand that, um, and I guess I'll just pose the question again, can you sure. have a period and not ovulate? Yes, that that is very important. You're right. I, I should, you know, really say that very clearly. So, you know, when we talk about a period as a reproductive endocrinologist, I'm talking about, you know, there was a follicle that grew, an ovulation that happened, and somebody did not get pregnant. And so as a result, about two weeks later, they have a period. Um, as opposed to, you know, what um, some of the other things that I described. So there's a couple different other things that could happen. So one is what I described previously as a, an ovulatory bleeding, which, you know, in our sort of everyday terminology, we might call it a period because we're having, you know, uterine bleeding, but that's coming from a totally different hormone uh, pattern. There was no ovulation that ever came in that kind of a pattern. And so it's not really a true period in that sense. Um, And also similarly, you know, a lot of times people will come in and they'll say, you know, on our questionnaire, we always ask, do you have regular periods? And they'll say, yep, I do. And then when they come in, I'll I'll be chatting with them and they'll say, oh yeah, well, you know, when I'm on birth control, my period's always regular. And, you know, that's also important to, to recognize that that's not a true period. Actually, when you're on hormonal birth control, Um, you know, what that's doing is kind of recreating a um, normal menstrual cycle and that you're getting exposed to estrogen and progesterone. And then when you get to the end of that pack and, you know, and then sort of that progesterone goes away, that mimics what would happen if somebody ovulated and then didn't get pregnant. And so you will naturally have a bleed that comes after that, what we call a withdrawal bleed. But again, that's not a true period. So, you know, there are kind of, I think there is a finer art to kind of confirming that somebody is truly ovulating and having that um, you know, normal sequence of events that leads to a period that comes, but there are a lot of other forms of uterine bleeding that can kind of happen and confuse the picture. And so that's part of a big part of my job is helping people sort out, you know, what exactly their cycle is doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's so frustrating for a lot of women with PCOS where, and I know this was certainly the case for me when I was younger and trying to uh, plan my family mm-hmm. uh, and charting my cycle. I was at the time using the Crichton model um, uh-huh. of family planning or NAPRO technology is another uh, word for it. <laughs> and 
I had a very hard time trying to figure out when I was ovulating because my cycles were so long. And I know right. I was having some of these, uh, quote unquote, like you said, periods that really weren't true periods. Um, maybe if you could uh, just speak again to the longer cycles and mm -hmm. let know what can we do at home? Uh, what, how do you advise your patients to, with PCOS to track their cycles? Yeah, so, I mean, I think luckily there are so many more options now for tracking because, um, you know, back in the day when we had to, you know, write things down in a journal or a, you know, calendar at home, it, I think it was much harder to keep track. Um, you know, now most of my patients and, you know, me included have, you know, some sort of app on our phone and can really keep track of that prospectively. So that really helps, you know, kind of the ability to go back and look at the dates and see, you know, is there a consistent pattern, even if it's long, or is it just totally unpredictable? You know, what, what's the story? And so, you know, when we're having these longer cycles, you know, that are outside, let's say longer than 35 days, so longer than five weeks, you know, as I mentioned, there's basically two possibilities. So one possibility is that somebody does have these sporadic ovulations, but instead of taking about two weeks for that, you know, egg to grow and ovulate, it takes longer than that. And so that makes the entire cycle take longer because from the time of ovulation to the next period is going to be more reliably about two weeks. So however long it takes for the egg to grow and release itself, you can just add two weeks to that and you get the length of the total cycle. So for some women, that's kind of what, happen what happens is that they get a random ovulation. And if they're trying to get pregnant, it's very frustrating because it's very difficult to track. You know, if it's you get, um, you know, you may not get a lot of ovulatory symptoms or you might be trying to track for days or weeks, kind of hoping for that ovulation to come and it gets very exhausting and I think very stressful, honestly. So that's option one. And then the option two is what I mentioned before, which is that actually an ovulation never occurs, but the uterus gets so thick after being exposed to all this estrogen that eventually that lining just sheds. So, you know, the question is, okay, well, what can be done, A, to kind of track that and then, you know, maybe bring it back into a more normal ovulatory pattern? Um, so the first thing is regarding tracking. So there are a lot of, as you uh, mentioned, Amy, with the Creighton model and um, NAPRO and all of that, there, you know, there are a lot of different things out there. And, you know, some of them will involve, you know, checking your basal body temperature or using, you know, uh, urinary ovulation predictor kits or, you know, monitoring for other ovulatory symptoms like changes to your cervical mucus or, you know, your libido or maybe other, you know, symptoms that people might experience. Um, and, you know, some of these um, can just be, I mean, again, some of them are just very frustrating. I've had a lot of patients that, you know, have been checking basal body temperatures for months or years. And then I have to sort of explain to them that maybe if they haven't been ovulating, you know, they were never going to see that bump the whole time. That can be very frustrating. Um, the ovulation predictor kits do work for some women, but in general, I'm not a big fan of them for women that know they have PCOS because many women that have PCOS have kind of a baseline higher level of LH, which is the luteinizing hormone um, that is measured in those predictor kits. So we see generally a fairly um, higher rate of false positive testing um, in many of in many of my PCOS patients come in and tell me that they'll say, oh, but I keep getting these random positives on my predictor kits at home. And that's just because their baseline levels of LH hormone are high. Um, and that's, you know, part of part and parcel of having PCOS for many women. So it can be a little bit tricky um, to do that, you know, to kind of keep track. But um, at the very least, I would definitely keep track of the dates of bleeding um, that you have, because I think it's important to know that um, and be able to see kind of what the pattern is over time. Um, 
I think the harder part is, you know, how do we get that, um, you know, cycle to kind of come closer to uh, coming with some regularity and hopefully having an ovulation that occurs. For some women that have PCOS, um, part of, of their um, PCOS could be that maybe they have insulin resistance. Um, maybe that's making it harder to kind of keep you know, the weight where we want it to be. Um, and we do know that having, you know, extra weight that we carry does further throw off the menstrual cycle. So our body kind of has this set mm, sort of uh, threshold, I guess you could say, and sort of a, a range of weight that it sort of thinks is healthy. And if we get above that or below that, our menstrual cycle gets thrown off. And so for some women, they do notice that if they're able to kind of change their diet and exercise regimen, um, you know, that they're able to actually notice that their cycle changes. And so again, you know, patients will come in and tell me, hey, you know, when I'm at this weight, I feel like my menstrual cycle is much more regular. Um, and everybody's a little bit different um, that way. But that's kind of the first thing is looking really hard at the lifestyle. And, and truly, Amy, that's where I refer a lot of my patients to your book, because you have so much good stuff in there about diet and meal planning, um, and stuff like that. So, you know, that's like a really good starting point for many of my patients to try to adopt that PCOS diet um, and become, you know, a little bit uh, or a lot bit healthier. Um, oh, thank so, you. Yeah, no, I, I found it really useful when I read your book, that section of it, because I think a lot of people struggle with, you know, sort of affecting a healthy lifestyle. Like they kind of know, I, I often tell my patients, you know, if I gave you a multiple choice quiz on what to eat or what to do, you would you would pass it with flying colors, but making it happen in your everyday life is what's really hard. Um, and, and making and so, it sustainable too. I think that's, it's, you know, it's the quick fix yeah. diet that's hard to be sustainable. I, I wanted exactly. to ask you about the weight loss. Um, you know, years ago, there were studies uh, that were, sh that showed that a 10% decrease in um, weight or body mass uh, really helped with PCOS mm -hmm. symptoms and ovulation. Do you think is does that still stand? Do you think that that's kind of a good benchmark? Or yeah, I think for women who's you know, I mean, and so you know, body mass index is you know not the perfect number by any means, but it takes into account your height and weight. Um, and for any women who kind of find that their body mass index is um, falling into an overweight or obese category, um, that's a good starting point um, is, is something like a 5 to 10%, you know, uh, weight loss. And um, again, you know, if you're doing it in, in a healthy, sustainable way, then for many women that will help their, um, their ovulation come back more regularly. Um, you know, I think a big part of that is understanding, too, that, you know, there can be a big variation. You know, some women might even be in that obese category and still ovulate like clockwork. Um, you know, and some women might have been able to, you know, work really, really hard on their lifestyle and do everything that we've ever asked and still not ovulate. So, you know, I, I definitely start with that because, you know, getting your health in a better place and eating better is also important to, um, you know, make sure that you're not at risk for developing diabetes mm -hmm. or prediabetes or any other metabolic issues. Um, but, you know, I always warn people too, I don't want you to get so fixated on this, um, you know, with the goal of I must ovulate as a result, because for some women, you know, their, their PCOS is just really strong. And they, like I said, could be doing everything perfectly and, you know, may still not, you know, see their cycle um, become per persistently or, or reliably ovulatory. That's a great point. I mean, it really is, there is no one size fits all approach. Um, totally. Yeah. So, but, and I think your point about lifestyle intervention, I mean, I, I do think it's first line therapy. Mm -hmm. You can't um, out supplement or even, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of 
take pharmaceuticals to uh, to counteract a poor uh, diet and lifestyle. Um, you know, not getting enough nutrients. Your body needs so many nutrients in order. Oh, and stress. I'm sure you see that too. If you're yeah. super stressed out, you're not going to ovulate. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that can definitely throw off the menstrual cycle. There's no doubt about that. Um, so, yeah, no, and I agree with you. I mean, that's definitely the first part. And the, the, the thing that's difficult is that's the hardest part. You know, like you mm-hmm. said, many women come in and they say, okay, what are all the supplements I need to take? Um, and, you know, they would be, you know, much happier to just spend the money and take a bunch of pills. But unfortunately, you know, that, that as you said, you can't, you can't out-supplement your body. I mean, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we just have to put the hard work in. But, you know, the benefits are so, uh, so broad, honestly, in terms of exactly. all of the good things that we're doing, because all of those changes, you know, forget about ovulating and fertility and all that stuff, but all of those changes are just so important for your long-term health, you know, because, um, even my patients that are trying to get pregnant, you know, there's two things that I always say, which is one, you know, you want to be healthy and not developing diabetes in 10 years. And, you know, believe it or not, I diagnose a lot of diabetes in 20 year old women with PCOS, you know, 20 something mm. old women, it's, it's just creeping up on us because, uh, you know, the American lifestyle in general is just really, really unhealthy. Um, but then the other thing is, and this is just an aside, but it's so cool, um, is that, you know, when you are pregnant, a lot of what the fetus is learning during that nine months of gestation is really guided by what you're eating at that time. And so, you know, I try to tell people, because I think as mothers, you know, oftentimes we'll do anything for our our children or our family, but we don't always do for ourselves. And I think, you know, that's the important thing is that these lifestyle changes immediately impact, you know, your baby before they're even born, um, which I think is so cool. um, And I think is a really big motivation to make those changes. So if you can become ovulatory that way, awesome. Um, And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a second, but there are some supplements and, you know, other approaches um, that I think can help too. Um, but you're right. The first line is definitely, you know, diet, 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 and then, you know, getting exercise as well. Uh, I wanted to just, uh, again, another side, you were talking about gestational diabetes and, or you were talking about mm-hmm. diabetes in your yeah. young, younger, but gestational diabetes, a lot of women mm-hmm. with PCOS are um, at risk for that. Does having gestational diabetes, does that make you or your offspring more susceptible to diabetes down the road? Oh, for sure. Um, so having gestational diabetes yourself is probably the biggest and strongest risk factor for getting type 2 diabetes down the line. So the way I always think of it is that once you get pregnant, basically the placenta starts making hormones that make you a little bit more insulin resistant. So it kind of creates more sugar or glucose kind of floating around the bloodstream. And the idea of that is we're trying to free up some of that sugar so that it can go to the pregnancy and help the, the fetus grow. But it's kind of, it sort of pushes you over the edge. So if somebody is kind of like on the brink of developing prediabetes or diabetes, getting pregnant is sort of this test on the body that sort of it's like a stress test. And then it sort of shows you, hey, you know, you're definitely susceptible. So, you know, that is definitely a big warning sign. So for, you know, patients, let's say that never get testing to see where their sugar levels are at, but then they get pregnant um, and then they, they have gestational diabetes, you know, definitely should be thinking really hard after, you know, babies come, you know, babies born, um, what they can do to kind of improve their lifestyle and prevent, you know, eventually developing type 2. And if those sugar levels are not well controlled during pregnancy, then definitely that has an impact on baby just through what I was mentioning. So so the scientific term for that is um, epigenetics. And so that's Mm -hmm. kind of like 
how our environment influences our genes. And so if somebody, let's say, has PCOS, but then they have one of those sporadic ovulations that I was, you know, mentioning, and they get pregnant, and maybe they don't even realize they're pregnant right away because they're used to having irregular cycles. Um, and then, you know, they get into prenatal care late as a result of that. You know, this is the story that I see all the time. And then now, you know, they haven't made a lot of changes in their diet, and maybe now their sugar levels are totally out of whack because, you know, they're, they're pregnant now. There's all those extra hormones, and, you know, now they're kind of into their pregnancy what happens is that with those extra sugar levels floating around, it can result in the fetus ending up um, weighing too much or weighing too little. Actually, it can go either way. Um, but what ends up happening as a result of that is that, you know, the baby, once they're born, kind of doesn't have a great metabolism already in the sense of it's kind of been exposed to kind of abnormal sugar levels, and it doesn't really um, have the same ability to properly um, metabolize sugar as a baby that is gestated in a more healthy intrauterine environment does. So to me, it's really motivating because for my patients, you know, we're monitoring, we're catching pregnancies early, we're, you know, right at the moment you could know that you're pregnant, we know. Um, and so, but we're talking about all of this ahead of time so that, you know, hopefully people can make those changes. And I always tell my patients, it doesn't matter, you know, what you did last year or 10 years ago, all your baby knows is what you're doing right now. Um, and so, because, you know, so many people just struggle their entire life trying to get, you know, their weight where they want it to be or to become obligatory for years, people can struggle. But, you know, once you get pregnant, all of that is out the window, you know, whatever you're doing at that moment is what matters, which I think is very cool. Yeah. In my book, I talk about having your big why to really mm -hmm. motivate you to make these lifestyle changes. And mm -hmm. if you're listening and you want to get pregnant and be a healthy mom and have a healthy baby, I don't know what better big why there is. Yeah, exactly. To really work on, on your diet and healthy lifestyle. So yeah, thanks for that um, information. Yeah. So let's let's get pivot back to yeah. ovulation and some other ways that we can increase our chances. Right. So um, I think that, you know, so I think in the world of supplements, I think the one that we probably talk about the most is um, inositols. Um, and, you know, um, that I think has really good data in terms of, you know, helping women, um, not again, not all women, it's not, nothing is 100% um, guaranteed. But, um, you know, I, I think for a lot of women, that's kind of the first thing that they might try. Um, and it might impact and it takes time to have an impact. It you know, takes at least a couple weeks, if not a couple months um, to kind of kick in. But for many women, you know, I'll find that they may be able to um, use that to kind of spark um, their cycle becoming obligatory. Um, that's probably has the most data behind it, but, you know, there are a lot of other supplements out there. Um, there are a lot of other herbal treatments out there. And, you know, also some of my patients um, will turn to acupuncture. And I've seen some good results with that as well in terms of helping, um, you know, women to become ovulatory. And so I think, you know, again, after that first, uh, first line of, of diet and exercise, some of these other things can help make the difference. Now, with the acupuncture, are you finding that uh, the regular acupuncture is enough? Or I know a lot of the studies are based on kind of like the electro-stimulated acupuncture. I think, you know, I mean, so I'm not a, you know, an expert at all on traditional Chinese medicine. But that being said, I've had, you know, a lot of continue to have a lot of really strong relationships with fertility acupuncturists, you know, in, in all the places that I've worked. Um, and mostly, you know, they're doing um, the, the regular acupuncture. Um, and, you know, the, one, the ones that I feel like are experts in this area feel pretty strongly that traditional acupuncture can do the job. And again, for somebody that's maybe not 
you know, necessarily. So it depends on the situation. For some women that are actively trying to get pregnant, um, you know, they may also prescribe some other herbs or give them right. some other herbal treatment to help support the cycle. Um, you know, sometimes we don't do that if we're, let's say, doing an IVF cycle because we don't want, you know, there to be, um, you know, interactions between all of the herbs and then all of the medications and stuff like that. But if somebody's, let's say, just trying on their own to help get themselves ovulatory, then a lot of times they'll do acupuncture plus herbs. And I've seen that work for a lot of women. So I know one of the traditional Chinese medicine kind of herb formulas, um, and it's something that I, I really recommend you work with someone and not self-medicate yes. with the herbs. Um, Agree. Uh, peony and licorice can be a powerful com- combination, combination to, I, I think, induce ovulation, but there, it's something that you really need to be working with somebody on. Um, yeah. Like, I agree, just to kind of back that up, because, you know, again, I'm not a a traditional Chinese medicine provider, but from what I understand, you know, it's just a very nuanced way of Mm -hmm. viewing the body, which I love. Um, And it's very much about the interconnectedness of different organ systems, which I think is the main thing that I really love about about that view of the body. Um, And so, you know, I guess my point is to say that not everybody's the same. And so there's definitely not, because I see that sometimes I see, you know, I, I kind of lurk, I guess you could say, in some online um, PCOS groups, and I'll oftentimes see people post, and they'll say, hey, you know, what supplements should I take for my PCOS? And then, you know, 50 women will say, well, here's what I take. And, you know, that that hurts me a little bit, because I, I just feel like, okay, well, none of these are tailored to that specific woman, you know, it's like everybody's sharing what worked for them, which is awesome. But, you know, there's no guarantee that that combo is going to work for anybody else. And so having yeah. that guidance is really helpful. I think I think one of those herbs is um, Vitex that mm-hmm. for some women, it can be really helpful <laughs> with yeah. cycle regulations, but um, other women, it can really disrupt their cycle. Uh, so I think that 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 one in particular is one uh, uh, supplement herbal that I just it, it it bothers me when people, like you said, list out all the things they're taking and it really could kind of disrupt your whole uh, progress that you've been making on your cycle by even taking, you know, a, a couple doses of it. I've seen that with women. So yeah, I would be careful because, you know, I don't, you don't want to undo your progress. Exactly. Um, so inositols, uh, anything else that you can think of across, across the board that would be helpful? You know, I think aside from that, um, you know, I, you mentioned some, and I think there's just a lot of other things that, you know, and I know you you describe a bunch of them on different, um, you know, aspects of your program and your website and stuff. And so I think that after inositols, there are other things that, you know, a lot of people talk about, but I would say that, you know, probably falls outside of where there's a lot of, you know, data behind it or outside of, you know, what I can speak to from a professional standpoint. And, you know, like I said, you know, point to some data to back it up. But I think, you know, that's where I would really encourage someone to, you know, if they're really interested in, you know, doing all of the things to get their cycle ovulatory outside of medication, um, then that's where I would really encourage people Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, work with somebody that's an expert in that area. I think um, along the lines of what uh, more of a Western medicine approach, you know, it just kind of depends again on someone's individual situation, because let's say, you know, somebody is, um, you know, really does have that insulin resistance phenotype and maybe, you know, weight is part of, um, you know, what their struggles are, then sometimes metformin can be helpful. Um, You know, metformin is a a medication that resensitizes our body to, to insulin. 
Um, and so for some women, it will not only help them prevent getting prediabetes and diabetes, it might help their weight loss. Um, and as a result, it might help them ovulate. Um, you know, I don't think of it as a medication to induce ovulation, but it certainly can help. Um, so that could be appropriate for some women as well. So a while back, you wrote a great post, and I'm going to post it in the show notes about uh, the difference uh, between letrozole and Clomid. And Mm -hmm. um, a lot of doctors I'm finding still uh, are not that familiar with letrozole as an ovulation inducing um, agent. So Mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if you could you know, I want people to definitely read that article because you go in detail there, but just yeah. sort of give us a, an overview. Yeah, so it's, it, that's a great transition from the metformin thing. So for, for because the, the history of it is relevant. So, you know, for a long time, metformin was really the only traditional pharmaceutical type medication that we had to try to help improve ovulation. And then, you know, clomiphene um, or clomid came on the market and, you know, that was shown to be uh, much better than metformin alone in terms of actually inducing an ovulation to happen. And then, you know, fast forward. And so then everybody kind of got in that mode of like, okay, Clomid, you know, the ovulation and induction conduction medication. And then fast forward, we have letrozole, which is a, also an oral medication. Um, it's what we call an aromatase inhibitor. Um, and it just also sort of helps spark the body to realize that an ovulation needs to happen or a follicle needs to grow. And it's actually been so long now. I think it was actually in 2014. Um, or maybe in the very beginning of 2015, that the trial that demonstrated um, that in women that have PCOS, letrozole is superior to clomiphene in terms of sparking an ovulation and in terms of live birth rate. This was the um, PPCOS2 trial. Um, so it's been out now for like five, six years. Um, and, you know, as a result, for those of us that are, you know, really passionate about taking care of women with PCOS, we pretty much switched over to using letrozole for ovulation induction for first line um, for women that have PCOS, um, but I, I totally agree. I still see lots of people out in the community using Clomid for everybody. Um, I think the good news about letrozole is that, in general, the side effect profile is is better. I think people tolerate it better. I think also, importantly, um, the chance of having multiple follicles grow with letrozole is less than you would get with Clomid, um, and so, you know, that just increases the chances of having a healthy singleton pregnancy, um, so that's another huge um, plus in my mind. Um, and then also for some women, um, Clomid can actually thin out their uterine lining, which is really counterproductive to what we want to see when we're trying to get pregnant, um, and letrozole doesn't do that. So there are a lot of advantages for women that have PCOS. Um, But definitely, if you're moving on to ovulation induction to kind of help spark that egg to grow, then letrozole should be the first choice medication. Great. So did we miss anything uh, that we need to cover before we wrap up? You know, I think we covered it all. I think, you know, it's just sometimes it's very confusing. And I want to kind of wrap up on a uplifting note, which is that, you know, I think there um, are a lot of great you know, healthcare providers and physicians and reproductive endocrinologists out there that, you know, want to help people figure out what's going on. For me, it's a really big win on my day if, you know, I have a patient that comes in and sometimes people come in with binders full of things that they've been tracking over the years and they just come in and they are still so defeated because they don't know, you know, have they been ovulating, have they not, um, you know, what's going on with their cycle. They've been doing everything, temperatures, 
predictor kits, the whole nine yards. Um, and they just want some answers. And, you know, the thing is, from the perspective of what I do, it's so easy to figure out if somebody's ovulating or not. Um, so I want people to feel empowered that if they're struggling and they're not sure, you know, if they're ovulating, find somebody that'll support you on your journey, because I will help a lot of women. I always offer, you know, when they come in, I'll say, look, if you really just want to know if you're ovulating or not, we can do essentially what we call a natural cycle. We'll follow things along. We'll see, are you growing a follicle, you know, by ultrasound? Um, and, or sometimes we'll just do blood work to see if the progesterone level goes up in the second half of the cycle, you know, after presumed ovulation. So there are really simple ways to help you figure out, you know, what's going on or not. So, you know, my point is just that if you're out there and you're listening and you've been trying to get your ovulation cycle more regular um, and you're not sure if it's working, you don't hesitate to reach out for help because, um, you know, before you drive yourself crazy, because it can be a lot um, to try to track and, um, you know, we're, we're here to help and it's, it's not that hard. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And maybe just um, to close, I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between uh, like your OBGYN and a reproductive mm-hmm. endocrinologist. Um, maybe you yeah, can just explain so, that difference. Sure. So yeah, I am first and foremost an OBGYN. Basically to become a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, you do three extra years of training after your OBGYN uh, training is finished. Um, And so that's a three-year fellowship. And basically our training during that time is specifically in, you know, the hormones related to the reproductive system. And so this is, you know, what uh, I'm used to talking about all day long, every day. Um, And so, you know, that's really helpful. And I think the difference um, that can be, you know, helpful for, you know, coming to see a reproductive endocrinologist versus just your OBGYN is that, um, you know, we have ready access to an ultrasound machine, you know, right in our office, and I'm doing scans all day long. So some OBGYNs do as well. So it really depends on your situation uh, individually. But for us, you know, we're just used to monitoring exactly where people are in their cycle. And I scan everybody right away on their first visit. So you just can sometimes get a little bit more information right away. Um, and we're open every day of the week. So, um, you know, that I think is also helpful for somebody trying to track their cycle. So if you feel like, you know, you're not getting enough uh, explanation from your OB or they're not able to monitor your cycles or kind of confirm one way or another, or if they're telling you something like, I don't know, maybe you have PCOS because I see a lot of that, then I think all of those are reasons to seek out a consultation with a reproductive endocrinologist so that you know what your diagnosis is, you know whether you're ovulating or not, and, you know, if you're trying to get pregnant, we can help make that happen too. Great. And you are, again, located in Houston. You're part of the CCRM Fertility Clinic, Uh uh, and you also do um, telemedicine. So yeah. Tell if, if somebody's listening and wants to have a consult with you, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so we'll, um, I guess in the show notes, we can have, um, I think you have a link to um, our practice page or I don't know, we'll, we'll look at that. But basically, if you come to our practice page, you'll see our phone number. Um, and you can just call to make the appointment. And if you're local in Houston, then fantastic. Um, if it's going to be a long distance thing, then um, we can do that over, um, over Skype. Not, it's not Skype, but it's over video, audio video. Um, you know, consultation. And um, I'm happy to review any records. That definitely makes the um, visit more helpful um, and kind of go through everything and and help you figure out, are you operating or not? Great. And also, please follow Dr. Khadija on social media. She posts um, often and has some really great content. So I was hoping uh, you could just give your handle. I will put that in the show notes for for those that are listening. Yeah, so I'm probably most active on Facebook and Instagram, and it's just at Arcadacia. 
Um, so really straightforward. Uh, and just spell that for everybody. Yep, it's um, R-K-U-D as in David, E-S as in Sam, I-A. Perfect. Well, thank you for uh, recording our fourth podcast together. I think this was really answered everybody's questions about ovulation. Awesome. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Amy. And thank you everyone for listening. I look forward to being with you again very soon. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on the PCOS Diva podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you liked this episode, remember to subscribe to PCOS Diva on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to this show. And if you have a minute, please leave me a quick review on iTunes because I love to hear from you. If you think someone else might benefit from this free podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend or family member so she can benefit from it too. And don't forget to sign up for my free weekly newsletter. Just enter your email at PCOSDiva.com to get instant access and make sure you never miss a future podcast. This is Amy Medling wishing you good health. Bye-bye.